Pray with me, please. Give me Jesus, Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. Amen. <laughs> you hear the story about the wife who became terribly concerned about her husband's health. He was a complete wreck. He was weak, pale, flabby, stressed out, constantly exhausted. So she took him to the doctor for a checkup. When the examination had been completed, the doctor came out to the waiting room, and the doctor said to the wife, Thelma, I just don't like the way your husband looks. She immediately responded, Neither do I, but he's good to the children. <laughs> well, believe it or not, there's a point to that story. Here it is. The most important thing, perhaps, that we can say about our God is that God is good to his children. And who are his children? We are. You and I are the children of God. And because we are the children of God, whatever is important to us is important to God. Doesn't that stand to reason? If you are a child of God, doesn't it make sense to believe that what is important to you, what matters to you, also matters to God? More significant than any title or honor or position or possession which might be ours in life, more important than any or all of that is the simple fact that you and I are the children of God. And therefore, what matters to us matters to God. Now, amazingly enough, I think, the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed makes that point. I refer to the miracle of the wedding at Cana. It's told for us in John chapter 2. Now, in reading the story, we can logically assume that this particular wedding involves someone who was a relative of Jesus and his family. I think we can logically assume that because one of the things we are told in the story is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she engaged in directing the servants about things they were to do in fulfilling their responsibilities, Mary was taking upon herself authority which in those days and under those circumstances was reserved only for members of the family. And so this was undoubtedly a wedding involving members of Jesus' family. And that's why the Bible tells us that Jesus and all of his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now what's so amazing here is that in what happened in this wedding, we see how remarkably tender and loving our Christ really is. Because, you see, he wound up altering the plan of heaven in order to save someone he loved from social embarrassment. Think of it. The very first miracle he ever performed did not reveal God's amazing power and wonder and wisdom for the world. No. 
The very first miracle Jesus ever performed declared very simply that God is willing to move heaven and earth to show you how much he cares about you. You are a child of God. What matters to you matters to God. That's the message of this particular miracle. Now, I want us to dig a little more deeply into this story. In fact, I want us to engage in some good old-fashioned hard Bible study. And so this sermon will be in an unusual format. You may even want to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 2 and follow along as we go. Here, I want us to examine first the problems arising out of this story, and then examine the promises flowing from this story. So dig deeply with me into this great story of the first miracle Jesus ever performed. First, let's take a look at the problems which arise from the story. Now, I need to acknowledge at this point that we are living in a time when God help us. Even some biblical scholars seem intent on undermining the authority of the Bible. Let me say very clearly that while there may be those in the church who seek to diminish the power of the gospel message, this pulpit never will, at least as long as I am standing in it. You see, dear friends, as long as God gives me the grace to preach, I shall always exalt my Christ, and I shall always demonstrate to you the unassailable truth of this Bible. The story of the wedding at Cana is a case in point. Biblical scholars point to four problems, they say, which arise out of this story, and those four problems lead some biblical scholars to say that the story is simply not true. Today, I rebut their arguments. Problem number one, some biblical scholars are put off by the response that Jesus makes to his mother when she comes to him telling him uh, that they have run out of wine at this wedding celebration. These biblical scholars say that uh, the response Jesus makes is totally out of character for someone who dares to call himself the Son of God. I disagree 100% with that assessment. I want you to understand something, that hospitality in the Middle East then, it's actually still true in the Middle East today, hospitality then was a sacred duty. And therefore, to run out of wine at a wedding celebration would have meant absolute humiliation 
for the wedding host and for his entire family. And so Mary turned to Jesus knowing that this loved one of theirs was in danger of terrible embarrassment. Mary turned to Jesus and said, they have no more wine. And at that point, Jesus immediately responded, Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Well, there are some who say that that is very harsh and out of character for Jesus. But they misread and misunderstand what he said. You see, his response was not harsh at all. In the first place, we do have the words of Jesus, yes, but we cannot possibly know the tone he used in his voice, nor can we know the expression he had on his face. But what we can know is that that line, why do you involve me, was a line which was used in a proverbial sense to deliver the message, my concern is not the same as yours. That, in essence, is what Jesus was saying. You see, Mary was concerned about the embarrassment of a loved one. Jesus was concerned about the cosmic work of salvation and redemption for the whole world. And so what Jesus said to Mary at that point was actually a gentle, loving reminder that Jesus was primarily about his heavenly Father's business. Interestingly enough, when you understand that, you begin to realize that that's exactly the same thing that Jesus said to Mary years before when Jesus was 12 years old and his parents found him in the temple. What did he say to them? He said to them, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? A gentle reminder to his mother that for Jesus, God's will always came first and foremost. In other words, Jesus was saying, I need to understand that God's will is for me to accomplish this miracle. That's all he was saying. Problem number one, resolved. Problem number two, some biblical scholars uh, declare that this story is not a legitimate story in the Bible because of the way that Jesus addressed his mother. He didn't address her as mother. He addressed her instead as woman. And they say, where is the gentleness and the godliness in that? Simply calling her woman. Well, I have to tell you, I can, at least up to a point, understand that. Because I have to tell you, I have got a king-size picture in my own mind of what would have happened had I, when I was young, addressed my mother as woman. I can tell you that fiery red-headed mother of mine would have decked me on the spot. But what you need to understand is that that word woman used as address in that day and time was actually a salutation of great respect, devotion, even exaltation. You do remember, don't you, how later on we read about it in John chapter 19. Jesus was dying on the cross, and among his last thoughts was a deep concern for his mother. And you remember 
how lovingly Jesus entrusted his mother into the care and keeping of his disciple John. You remember how Jesus said to his mother with great affection, Woman, behold your son. And so you see, that word woman used as address was not a term of disparagement or disrespect at all. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. Problem two, resolved. Problem three, some biblical scholars denounce and decry this miracle as a meaningless miracle. They say all Jesus did was turn some water into wine. The fact is, they missed the whole point. You see, it was at this point that Jesus used his power to bring some happiness to some people he loved and cared about. That's always a concern of our Christ. Oh, understand me, please. That is not his primary concern. I mean, he did not come to this earth to die on the cross and to rise from the dead just to make us happy. No. But make no mistake about it. Our happiness is not a matter of indifference to our Lord. Jesus cares about us. And what matters to us matters to the Lord. What mattered to this wedding host mattered to Jesus Christ. And so he laid aside the work of salvation long enough to remove the embarrassment and replace it with happiness for a person he truly loved. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, stop to think about a Christ who cares about us that much. Jesus, you see, never equated sourness with saintliness. Jesus never equated gloominess with godliness. For Jesus, the phrase joyless Christian would have been an oxymoron. Jesus understood that faith in God always marches in step with the exuberant spirit. And isn't it wonderful then that Jesus would be willing to perform a miracle for no other reason than simply to bring some happiness to someone about whom he deeply cared. Isn't that a wonderful thing to tuck away in your own heart and remember? That Jesus is so concerned about us, about every part of our lives, not just one or two little parts of it. He is so concerned about us that he will move heaven and earth as an expression of that love and that care. Problem three, resolved. Problem four, some biblical scholars denounce this story because of its excess. Why, they say, such an abundance of wine? Well, it is true in the story that Jesus pointed the servants to six 
30-gallon water jars, stone water jars. And he said to the servants, fill those with water. They did. Then Jesus said, take a sample and take it to the steward of the banquet. They did. He tasted it. It was wine. It was good wine. Not only that, it was the very best wine. Well, they quickly did their multiplication and they said, my heavens, we've got 180 gallons of wine, more than enough. Well, think about it, dear friends. Don't you understand that that's the way Jesus always is? That's the way Jesus always works, more than enough? John the Baptist once said, of his fullness we have received grace upon grace, not just a little, a lot, more than enough. You remember when Jesus fed the multitude, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and they wound up with too much. In fact, they had 12 baskets full of leftovers, more than enough. Jesus himself said, I have come to bring you life, life abundant, more than enough. That's the way Jesus is. That's the way Jesus works. Thank God for this abundant, extravagant Christ of ours who always gives us more than enough. Problem four, resolved. And so, in contradiction to what a number of biblical scholars teach us about this particular story, I want you to understand that I believe that every single element of this story has about it the ring of truth. This is an authentic miracle of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to understand it otherwise is to display an ignorance both of the Bible and of our Christ. All right, we've had a look at the problems in the story. Now, let's dig in to the promises which flow out of the story. In the first place, this story promises us that in Jesus, our lives are transformed. That's really what this miracle is all about. The life of the person who comes to Christ in faith is changed. It's transformed. When we believe, truly believe in Jesus Christ, then by his power, our lives are transformed just as that water was transformed into wine. That is clearly the message being delivered here. You can see it in the significant details of the story. Let me point you to those details. Notice, please, we are told that Jesus pointed to six large stone water jars. Now those water jars were there by decree of Jewish law. There were many Jewish laws about purification. It was said that the only way the people could become pure enough to be in God's company 
was to wash themselves, and they evermore did wash themselves. Those stone water jars were in every place, and they spent an inordinate amount of time washing their hands and their feet and their face, washing and washing and washing. The problem was, all of that washing never managed to make them into the people that God wanted them to be. And Jesus knew that. Notice also, please, we're told that there were six of those stone jars. Six. That's a significant number in the Bible. The number six always symbolizes imperfection because it is one number below the perfect number, seven. And so look at the message that Jesus was delivering. Jesus was saying that the old law, including all of those laws about washing, the old ways of doing things are imperfect. They haven't worked. And so he is declaring in working this miracle that he has come bringing to this world and to God's people a new power, a power to change them, to transform them, to enable them to become everything that God wants them to be. That's the message that was being delivered here, that in Jesus Christ, we are transformed. We are changed. We become truly the children of God. Now, I don't know if everybody at the wedding got it, but we do know that at least his disciples did. Because do you see that little line right down at the end of the story? It says, the disciples came to faith in him because of this miracle. That's the first promise. In Jesus, our lives are transformed. And then the story promises us that in Jesus, obedience leads to true joy. I want to tell you something. In our spiritual lives, if we neglect those spiritual lives, they can become as weak as water. Make no mistake about that. <laughs> Let me put it this way. I don't know if you saw this. Did you read about the woman from Galveston, Texas? This was actually in the paper. This woman was cleaning out her parakeet's cage, working the bottom of that cage, sucking the debris out with a vacuum cleaner. And the phone rang. As she reached over for the phone, she let the nozzle of the vacuum cleaner drift up. And it sucked this happy singing little bird right into the vacuum cleaner. She was panicked. She threw the phone down ripped open the vacuum cleaner in the bag inside and retrieved this dust-covered little bird. And she took the bird to the vet, and thankfully, the vet managed to do what needed to be done, and the little bird survived. However, the woman later on, speaking of the bird, said, there has been a profound change in him. He no longer sings. He just sits there and stares. <laughs> Let me tell you something, friends. Life will do that to you. Life will suck the song right out of you. You see, we ought to be marching through life singing the faith. But if we don't let Christ keep working in our lives, we'll lose that song. So how do you get it back? 
How do you recover the powerful vibrancy of your faith? Interestingly enough, Mary gives us the answer right here in this story. Mary said to the servants, speaking about Jesus. Now understand, at this point, Mary didn't know all that there was to know about Jesus, but she did have tremendous faith in her son. And Mary then said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. There it is. That's the answer. If you want to regain, reclaim, renew, re-energize your faith, the way to do that is plain, simple obedience to Jesus Christ. Do what he tells you to do. And then maybe best of all, this story promises us that in Jesus, the best is yet to come. In the story, the master steward goes to the wedding host and he says, Sir, I don't know what to make of this. Usually people serve the best wine first, and then later on the poor wine is brought out. But now, you have saved the best for last. Catch that, please. That's the way it is for us as Christians. The best is yet to come. Do you want to know why Christians can live life on tiptoe? Do you want to know why Christians can have an unconquerable hope in this world? Do you want to know why for most Christians life is never flat and lifeless? It is simply because we as Christians understand that the best is yet to come. The best wine has been saved for last. It's all going to get better. We can count on that. That's the great promise of this story. And believe you me, in the midst of a world like this, that is worth remembering. That in Jesus Christ, you and I can know that for us, the best is yet to come. What a great story. Well, I'm reminded of a church in Sweden, Roman Catholic Church, where they have the traditional crucifix above the altar. But in this particular church, there is a second crucifix. It is fastened to a pillar opposite the pulpit. This goes back to the year 1760, when one Sunday, King Charles Twelfth of Sweden suddenly, without advance notice, suddenly appeared as one of the worshipers in that church on Sunday. The pastor in that church was so overwhelmed by the presence of the royal visitor that he set aside the sermon he intended to preach, and instead he spent the time heaping praise upon the royal family. That next week, the king sent the pastor a gift. It was this second crucifix. And with the gift, there was a note. And the note read, This crucifix is to be placed on the pillar opposite the pulpit, so that anyone 
who stands there to preach will always remember his proper subject. I love that story because let me tell you, my beloved people, I know my proper subject. Oh, there may be those today who would seek to diminish the power of the gospel message. I am not one of them. As long as God gives me the grace to preach, I shall exalt my Christ, and I shall demonstrate to you in every conceivable way the unassailable truth of this Bible. That has been my intent today. May God bless this simple witness which I offer to you in His name. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. Enable us to understand that we are indeed, through Jesus Christ, we are indeed your children. And therefore, what matters to us matters to you. Thank you, O oh God, for this priceless gift. Amen.